the last time that I was looking for an apartment was the fall of 2020, so like a year and a half ago. I was looking for a one-bedroom that was under $1,000 in Salt Lake City. There wasn't a ton out there, but there definitely were some places in that price range. But now, rentals are so much more expensive than that, I cannot believe it. A report from the Utah Foundation shows housing costs increased 29% from September 2020 to September 2021. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. This week on State Street, we're talking about how much money the Utah legislature is thinking about investing in affordable housing this year. And also how that impacts homelessness in the state. To understand what people are dealing with, I talked to someone who's trying to rent in this market that is even crazier than when I was looking. So I'm here with Ivana Martinez. She is a reporter with me at KUER and also helps us out on State Street with photos and social media. Thanks for talking about your housing search, Ivana. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. It's uh, It's been a journey, really. <laughs> I'm sure it has. Um, so tell me about your budget and kind of what you're looking for. You know, ideally, the best circumstance would be a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment. You know, I think I'm at that stage in my life where I want to be living independently. Yeah, you're a college grad. You know, you've been out of college for a year now. Yeah, so it's been a little while, and I have some savings. So I've been looking, you know, in that 800, 900 range, so, you know, my rent doesn't take out a chunk of my, well, I should rather say my entire paycheck, um, which is a lot of w- realistically what's out there. It's you're bargaining whether you're going to use your entire paycheck to pay for rent or you're going to move into a house with several other strangers to make, you know, rent in Salt Lake City. So it's it's a very interesting market. Um And that's just for someone who is, you know, fresh out of college, who has a salary. I cannot even imagine what that's like for a family. What's the search like? Where, Like, where are you looking and what kind of options are you finding? Oh, my God. And how many options? I am like a Facebook marketplace fiend. I am on there like 24-7 looking at, you know, listings that go up. I'll occasionally use KSL. But really, Facebook marketplace is like where I'm at. How has this apartment search made you feel? Oh my gosh. Like I want to rip my hair out. Like it, it, it's just it's a very frustrating experience because you almost get like your hopes up every time there's this this thing that might work out and then it falls through and then you're back out square one looking at these same apartments really negotiating like how much am I willing to spend to live in a, you know, sometimes these apartments that are out there on the market are 400 square feet to 600 square feet. And you're paying about like $1,500 to to live in basically a dorm room, which is absurd to me. So it can be really, really frustrating and exhausting. Jeez, Sonia, it's brutal out here. It really is. Just listening to that reminds me how horrible looking for apartments are. Like, it's just awful. It's the worst process. And, like, Ivana is not even asking for much. A simple one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment. It's a big ask. Uh, Apparently. And (laughs) it feels like there's a bigger sense of urgency in the legislature to address this issue now than there has been in the past. 
This year, they're looking at one-time funding of about $228 million to address affordable housing for young professionals like Ivana and also for people struggling with homelessness. We're going to hear from a Republican state senator who's been involved in this issue for years and also from a co-chair of the Salt Lake Valley Coalition to End Homelessness. There are a lot of factors at play, but we wanted to look at two major issues when it comes to Utah's affordable housing crisis. First, limited supply. We've had a lot of growth here in the state, and our affordable housing stock hasn't kept up, and that limited supply drives up costs. The other factor, though, is wages. They have not kept up with rising housing costs. And depending on who you talk to, you'll probably get pretty different perspectives on which of these two factors is most important and which one we should focus on in order to bring down housing costs. The lack of affordable housing affects people from all income levels, Sonia. But let's talk about its impact on people who are at risk of becoming homeless. You know, people who are one paycheck away from losing their housing situation. From 2016 to 2020, the Utah Auditor's Office found the homeless population increased by 200 percent. That is a massive increase. It's a lot of people. And when we're talking about homelessness, it makes sense that advocates say one of the best solutions is housing that people can actually afford. So when it comes to what the legislature is doing, there is that $228 million, and then $128 million of that is for deeply affordable housing. And part of that deeply affordable housing money could go to permanent supportive housing. Homeless advocates say that is a really important tool. I talked to Jean Hill about this. She's the co-chair of the Salt Lake Valley Coalition to End Homelessness. And I started off by asking her what permanent supportive housing actually is like? It kind of depends on which facility they're in, but really it is your own place. It is an apartment or, you know, a single room occupancy kind of situation. What they're getting in permanent supportive housing is a safe place to stay, but also the kind of wraparound services they're going to need. So they'll have a case manager who will help them identify those needs and then help them access the resources that they need to make sure they're getting all the requirements that they really need to have in order to stay successfully housed. And as the name suggests, it is permanent. We don't have a timeline on how long people can stay. They stay until they are ready to move on. And for some folks, they may never reach that point where they're ready to move out of that facility. And for some, they will decide that, you know, I've had the mental health treatment I needed. I've addressed my substance abuse disorder and know how to handle that. And I'm ready to move into my own place somewhere else. And I have the the funds to do that because I've been able to really successfully stay employed. What does it take to get like an individual person out of homelessness? And how does permanent supportive housing fit into that? (laughs) <laughs> it takes I know that's a big question, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Cuz again, every every person is an individual and every individual has different paths into homelessness. So ultimately, what everyone needs is housing. And what everyone needs is housing they can afford. And that's probably the biggest barrier for everyone trying to get out of homelessness. For a lot of folks, they need sober housing. So they need a facility that doesn't allow drugs and alcohol. And those can be incredibly difficult to find for anyone, not just homeless individuals, but people coming out of prison who have to have that as part of their parole. I mean, it's hard to find that sober living facility. And then people do need, you know, if you've been homeless and living on the street for years, or you've been living in a a homeless resource center for years, 
adjusting to living on your own is something we have to recognize people need time to make that adjustment. And they're going to make mistakes while they're making that adjustment. So we've got to be able to provide the supports they need to make the adjustment and also to deal with those times when they struggle with that, including times when they relapse if they have a substance abuse disorder. So this year, the legislature is looking at about $128 million in one-time funding for deeply affordable housing, which could include permanent supportive housing. How big of a difference will that make? And is it enough? It will make a big difference. It's it's not going to be enough. <laughs> we we need so many permanent supportive housing units already. I think in Solid County alone, we're for the year, we need at least 600 more units. And that number doesn't go down from year to year. We always need more permanent supportive housing units. So it is but it is the first incredibly generous investment in this kind of housing. And, you know, our hope is that we will make that investment and then recognize that it is a first investment and that investment needs to continue. What are some concrete projects that this money could be used for? Uh, I think what we would love to see right now and what we've been working on for quite a while now is our older adults and medically frail individuals. We still want to find that hotel project that would give us, you know, maybe 200 rooms not just as shelter, but ultimately turn that facility into long-term housing for folks that would be permanent supportive housing. So that's about a $14 million cost, we estimate, to get the hotel from what we've seen on the market right now, plus some refurbishment of maybe about $8 million more. So that's, you know, that's one project that's coming in about $20 million. And there we are. We have 200 rooms for folks who are in desperate need of those rooms. Zooming out a little bit, over the past, say, 10 to 15 years, what kinds of efforts have we seen from the legislature to address housing and homelessness, and do you think they've been effective? I don't know that I can speak 10 years ago. In the last three, four years, we've had much more of a positive focus on homelessness. I think, you know, Operation Rio Grande had definite issues. And I think the focus there originally, we started out with a focus on law enforcement and what's happening to housed folks around the area and businesses around the area. Even though Operation Rio Grande was supposed to then focus on treatment and didn't really meet those promises, I think now we're starting to see that focus more on the treatment needs and the housing needs. And that's really where the focus must be. Law enforcement can't solve homelessness. Moving people out of one area doesn't solve homelessness. Housing and services solve homelessness. And I think we're on a better path now where we're really starting to talk about, you know, homelessness isn't a failure by individuals. It's a failure by our systems. Before the last few years where you feel like things have started to to change for the positive, what were some of those conversations about homelessness in the legislature? And how has that impacted um, the ability to make a difference now? Like, has it made it harder? Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, originally it was these people just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or, you know, these are people who have chosen this lifestyle as if anyone chooses to be homeless. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, we've come a long way a- away from that. There's even and still this still exists. But even, you know, all homeless people are drug addicts. That's couldn't be further from the truth or all homeless people have mental health issues. About 20 to 30 percent of our homeless population actually have those issues. So really understanding that, you know, people are trying and want out of homelessness and we can help them move out of homelessness. And I think slowly we're getting a better understanding that, you know, when they fall again, 
that's okay. We can address that again. What we really want is we're never going to end homelessness, but we want to get to functional zero where people who fall into homelessness get out of it very quickly and hopefully don't fall back into it ever again. Jean Hill, co-chair of the Salt Lake Valley Coalition to End Homelessness. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you, Sonia. Always a pleasure. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about housing more broadly with Republican Senator Jake Andreg and whether all this funding will make a difference. You are listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. Utah has been struggling with its affordable housing crisis for years. But Sonia, it really feels like there's this sense of urgency around the issue this year. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's probably felt that way for renters and home buyers for a while now. Yeah. But state lawmakers are really making this a priority this year, putting their money where their mouth is more so than before. Yeah, that's my feeling, too. And before we go to our next interview, we have to tell you how the government calculates affordable housing, because our guest is going to be throwing around this wonky acronym. And so we, we need to explain that a we little do, bit. We do. We definitely Set do. Set people up for success. <laughs> so the acronym is AMI. That stands for Area Median Income. And that is the number to figure out what an affordable apartment or house should cost. So get ready. Here's the formula. 30% of 80% of the median income for an area. Oh, good. It's clear it's as mud. so easy to understand. Yes. <laughs> All right, let me try. Let's start with the median income. In Salt Lake City, that's just under $61,000 per household. Now, 80% of that is about $48,500. An affordable apartment, including utility costs, Sonia, that's got to be included in the housing costs, should be no more than 30% of your monthly paycheck. So, $1,200. Make sense? Absolutely. You did a much better job than I did. Thank you so much. It's a team effort, you know? Yeah, yeah, no. So 30% of your paycheck is what you should be paying for your house or for your apartment. And that's a really common way to think about affordability. But by definition, half of the people in Salt Lake City, in Utah, are making less than that median income. There are a lot of acronyms that get thrown around when talking about this issue. But remember, AMI, Area Median Income, that's the big one. Back to the legislature. I asked Republican Senator Jake Anderegg about this hunch we've both had that state leaders are making affordable housing more of a priority this year. He sponsored lots of affordable housing bills and is pretty deeply involved in this issue at the state level. And not only that, he is also the chair of the Social Services Appropriations Subcommittee. They handle all of the requests for housing and homelessness funding. I started off by asking him about this new sense of urgency. The lack of affordable housing is probably one of the top issues facing the state. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. I think that we are somewhere between 46,000 and 49,000 units short uh, supply versus demand in the state right now. This has been a problem for 
quite a few years. Like, we didn't just all of a sudden fall into this crisis. But it feels like this year there's this new sense of urgency around this issue. We've got Governor Spencer Cox requesting $228 million for affordable and deeply affordable housing. Uh, We've also got House Majority Leadership saying that housing affordability is a policy priority for them. So what is different this year? Where do you think that sense of urgency is coming from? I've been working on the affordable housing for the last four years, and the biggest year I ever got was a $10 million infusion of capital. Um, So the fact that we're going from $10 million to $228 million is, is remarkable. The single biggest reason for that is between the CARES Act money we got in 2020 and the ARPA, the American Rescue Plan money that we got from the federal government, which is different. We couldn't use it exactly the same way. We ended up opening up two uh, major funding sources. So um, this year, it's a blessing in disguise as far as COVID. So uh, it's, it's been heightened because people are talking about it. People recognize the issue. People have kids and grandkids that are moving from the state at record numbers. And likewise, I think we have people moving up from California. And that's also adding to the increase in housing costs. And I'd say on top of all of that is just where the economy here is going. Uh, it's kind of the perfect storm And I think with this big chunk of money sitting there, people are saying we really got to throw a serious amount of money at this to really attack this. What does the state need to do to get on top of this problem right now? We have to take a serious look at our land use authority. We still have a fairly serious nimbyism issue, not in my backyard. Everyone agrees we have a housing issue, but what they're saying is, hey, build that high density stuff over there, not here. We're going to go after some of the land use authority and um, push the cities to do more. Second thing is, it really is about putting policies in place to address the development of housing stock and ensuring the savings for those is passed on to the end user that is in the affordable range of 80% or below of area median income. And ideally at 40% and below, that deeply affordable Uh, Because those are the people that in that deeply affordable range that are one life event away from becoming homeless. And every $1 we spend it for prevention, then we have to spend $20 approximately in intervention. And as a conservative Republican, that's just a waste of money. Just kind of talk about how the state has approached this in the past. The Olean Walker Fund was set up in order to take state dollars and actually apply it into helping to reduce the overall loan to value on a project to get it to where it can be cost effective for a developer to actually build these types of units, thereby passing the savings through to the end user. So basically the point is, is to subsidize the development so that they can make enough money to allow people to afford the affordable housing. Is that the most simple way to think of that? (laughs) That's exactly right, is how do we reduce the overall upfront costs to ensure that a certain percentage on the back end of users can afford to at their income levels to be able to live in a home, live in an apartment, whatever it might be. You are the co-chair of the Social Services Appropriations Subcommittee. That means you handle all the funding requests related to housing, among many, many other things. Um, And like I said, the governor requested this $228 million. What is actually on the table this year? 
from the legislative perspective. This is what I believe you're going to see. The $100 million that's going into the affordable housing, you're going to see $50 million of that go specifically to rural gap financing through the Olin Walker Fund. Uh, you'll see another $50 million go into the gap financing of Olin Walker, but along the Wasatch Front. Additionally, you're going to see the $128 million that's supposed to go for deeply affordable and or the homeless intervention and wraparound services that former President Wayne Niederhauser is pushing. That's how I see that $228 million being used. I will say that with a $100 million infusion of capital, I think that we expect somewhere around 4,000 to 5,000 units that are the affordable pass-through will actually come online in the next 24 months. And that's significant. We have to talk, though, about another factor in all of this, which is that wages have not kept up with rising housing costs. The 2021 out-of-reach report from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition showed that the average renter wage in Utah is less than $16 an hour, but you would need $20 to afford a two-bedroom apartment. And then, Senator Andreg, we've got Utah's minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour, and it has been since 2009. So can Utah make progress on our affordability crisis without addressing wages? Probably not as easily, <laughs> but yeah, we can. <laughs> um, you know, that's the conservative Republican approach. Okay, so you're, I'm giving you the spiel. So here's the spiel. Um, I know that the, the McDonald's in my area in Lehigh is paying $16.50 an hour starting. So the effective minimum wage is so much higher than what the legal minimum wage is. So it's, it's, it's not really an argument anymore. We will always have this argument of should we raise the minimum wage, a workable, livable wage. And there are reasons why that might make sense. And there are reasons why that would be a detriment to the economy and just push everything up. It's like wherever you put that line in the sand, you push everything up and eventually this becomes uh, no longer <laughs> tenable. It doesn't work. One-time funding is one thing, and that's really what we're talking about here with these federal dollars and what's on the table. But concerns over housing will probably be a long-term issue. How will the state make sure housing stays affordable in the long run? Well, um, that's a good question. Truth is, I don't know that, that anyone up here in the legislature has a magic wand to ensure that we can do anything. It's a misnomer to think that the government has that type of authority to just turn the switch on or turn the switch off. It, the economy is, is much bigger than that. That being said, currently going into the Olin Walker Fund is just over $2 million each year of ongoing money. I personally tried to pass bills in the past that have increased that and we haven't gotten anywhere with that. <laughs> I'm, I, I've been feeling like I've been banging my head against the wall a little bit, but I'll take whatever I can get. Ongoing versus one time, this is something that we need to continuously attack. I, I agree with you. I just, I want to make it very, very clear that of the 48, 49,000 units of the housing gap, most of that, it's not the proper role of government to get involved with, right? Like, I don't know that anyone would say, hey, we should be subsidizing a 500,000 home builder, 500,000 value. But when we really start getting into that 80% below area median income, that is, I believe, the proper role of government to intervene. Now, it's continuously a moving target. So it is something that I don't know that we're ever going to solve the issue. 
But if we can figure out how to solve 70, 80, 90% of the issue, I think government will be doing what we were meant to do. Senator Jake Anderegg, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate the time. Emily, I think it's important to note that $2 million a year of ongoing money into the Olean Walker Housing Fund is so little compared to the one-time money that they're looking at spending to develop housing. Yeah, it's actually a little closer to $3 million, Sonia, when we, right. look, at the, when we look at the budget. But still, we've said this before on the show, the budget and what the legislature chooses to spend money on, that illustrates what the legislature cares about and prioritizes. Well, let's look at those $3 million of ongoing funding compared to, say, the tax cut that they passed this year. Big $200 million tax cut. It will cost the state you know, nearly $200 million a year, every year in perpetuity. So they are spending a ton more on tax cuts. One-time funding is still funding. Advocates like Gene Hill, they are celebrating that. They are excited about that money. But it's not nearly as big of an investment as ongoing funding because, you know, like not all $200 million are created equal. And for people like Gene that are working on opening up more permanent supportive housing, that one-time funding can be used to actually buy buildings and renovate them or, you know, build new facilities. Right. But they're going to need some ongoing funding down the line in order to run services like substance abuse treatment and mental health services through those facilities. You know, Emily, it's also really interesting how Senator Anderegg is defining the role of government in dealing with this housing affordability crisis. Right. He says government doesn't have all the power in the world to deal with this issue. Like, they can't turn off the affordable, non-affordable switch. But there are certain times when they should intervene. And in this case, he says it's appropriate for the government to support low-income housing. And he also says that putting more money into making housing more affordable is actually a really fiscally conservative thing to do. Right. And that's because it's less expensive to keep people housed than it is to respond to issues around homelessness. We're talking about homeless services, um, but also policing and public safety, as well as health care. We also need to talk about the other factor that influences housing affordability, and that is wages. Mm -hmm. And it's not just advocates that are saying this. There's also this report from the state's Department of Workforce Services that came out last year, and it basically says we can't just build our way out of this crisis. We do need to build affordable housing, but we also need to raise wages. Yeah, but Sonia, the party line from legislative Republicans is that messing with the minimum wage would cause housing to actually be more expensive. That is a really common argument. Unfortunately, the jury is kind of out on this, depending on which economists you happen to ask about it. So I remember when the analyst presented that Department of Workforce Services report you mentioned, Sonia. It was last May during a legislative committee hearing, and it blew my mind. And it's really stuck with me because what they were saying was different from what we've heard from state leaders and the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute at the University of Utah for years, which is that we just need more supply and that'll take care of our housing crisis through the principles of supply and demand. 
I remember talking to you after that hearing, and you were also really shocked by the lawmakers' reaction to the report. Yeah, they basically completely dismissed it. They said this analyst was lying, that he was cherry-picking the data. Wow. And I think it's important to note that several members of this committee are part of the real estate and home-building industry. We've only got two weeks left of the legislative session, and if history is any indication, they will be filled with the most contentious and important debates of the year. So before that starts, let's recap what happened this past week. The bill repealing the death penalty failed in a committee hearing by just one vote. That hearing lasted more than two hours and included some really emotional testimony from victims' families. If you want to learn more about that issue, check out our episode from last week. COVID-19 vaccines are up for debate again at the legislature. A committee passed two bills that limit vaccine requirements. The first prohibits businesses and government from mandating proof of vaccination for services or employment. These are the so-called vaccine passports. The second bill exempts employees from vaccine requirements if they present a doctor's note saying they previously had COVID. And the legislature is once again talking about rules around transgender girls playing school sports. Now, last year, lawmakers proposed an all-out ban on transgender girls playing on girls' school sports teams. That failed. This year's legislation goes on a more case-by-case basis. So if a transgender athlete wants to play a sport, they would have to go before a commission that this legislation sets up. That commission would decide if it's fair for them to play based on things like height, weight, and wingspan. This latest version of the bill has passed the House. So it's going to the Senate now, and Senate President Stuart Adams said he would like to see it pass there as well. That does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. The team includes Caroline Ballard, Elaine Clark, Brenton Weiniger, Renee Bright, Ivana Martinez, and Jim Hill. Our theme music was written by Roddy Nickford. State Street is a production of KUER. If you liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. It really helps other listeners find the show. And if you want to learn more about what's going on in the legislature, Sonia and I send out a weekly recap newsletter. You can sign up for that at statestreetpod.org. See you next week. Right. He says government doesn't have all the power in the world to deal with this issue. Like they can't turn off the affordable, non-affordable switch. Wouldn't that be nice if they just had a dial they could yeah. deal with that was like <laughs> hidden in a drawer in the governor's desk? <laughs> I was trying. I was just trying to think of what else would be in the governor's desk, but there are like no new codes or anything I like that. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like the keys to the soda fountain. <laughs> From KUER.